this morning sermon text will be Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 to 34. I pass by the fear of a slugger, by the thin yard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and a stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hand to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and one like a, an armed man. Now, this introduction doesn't work for tomorrow because we got a day off. But most of us don't thank God for Mondays. Um, we do thank God for Fridays because it's, it's a day off that we have. So unfortunately, it doesn't really work for this one. But didn't have anything else for you, so that's what you got. But <clears throat> we don't have, I, I think generally speaking, a strong value of, uh, of work. You can see it in our bumper stinkers. Our bumper stickers will say things like, uh, a bad day fishing is better than a good day at the office. Or if work's so good, why do they have to pay you for it? You know, we have this kind of confused view of the nature of what work is, the purpose of work, the value of work. In fact, only 20% of those surveyed uh, would say they're satisfied with their work. Only 20% are satisfied. Now, given the fact that if you live an average life, you will work for 80,000 hours, we want to get this right. We want to think about the nature of work. Why do we work? Why do we work? I mean, for some of you, you may be thinking, well, I don't really like work. I just work because I have to work. I've got to pay the bills, so we've got to you know, go get a job to pay the bills. Others of you may say, well, you know, yeah, I like to work. Uh, it's, it's how I find meaning and value and significance. It's my identity. You know, I do this. This is what makes me. This is why uh, many people struggle in retirement. Is what, who am I now? Because I've lost my kind of identity. Uh, others work because you agree on the plan or, or whatever the vision of the company is or whatever they're doing specifically that you want to plug into that. That gives you meaning and value. Well, when you look at your own soul right now, why do you do what you do? Why do you work? What kind of worker are you? You know, the Bible speaks a lot about work, particularly Proverbs. Remember now, we've been in this series in Proverbs. Proverbs are, they're not precepts. They're not laws. They're just principles that are generally true as you walk them out. Uh, they, they tend to be very practical. They tend to be often quite uncomfortable. And they are theological in the sense that they're giving you skills for living in a broken world as broken people as God's image bears. So the Proverbs are to instruct you in these things that we do in life. Now, when we speak about uh, work in the context of Proverbs, it's really kind of summed up under two types of people, uh, the sluggard and the skilled. Now, when I speak about the sluggard, I don't want you just to think sluggish, and I don't want you to limit it to laziness. It's a person that's habitually resting. It's a person who lacks sense. It's a person who procrastinates. It's a wide range of what covers the sluggard. 
Now, in Proverbs, the skilled worker is marked by, they have a knowledge of why God has given us the gift of work. They are diligent. They are self-starters. They are honest. Now, you're going to be entertained by some of Solomon's comedic skill as he kind of compares the sluggard and the skilled worker. He uses humor and really intentional exaggeration uh, because he doesn't just want to get us to remember these things, <clears throat> but while we're laughing, we're learning and, and maybe even being convicted by what he's saying. So Solomon here is instructing his son on the nature of work. The first thing he's going to do is speak about the purpose of work. Now, I'll probably look more at Genesis for that. That's where we get a lot of our purpose for We'll look at Genesis, but he's going to look at the purpose of work and then the pitfalls of work. What are the dangers that we're needing to avoid so that we don't end up at the end of life being more like the sluggard than the skilled worker? And then thirdly, he's going to give us kind of a path to, to look at work as, what does wisdom in work look like? So first, let's look at the purpose of work. So when you think about that, what would your answer be? What's the purpose? Just silently in your own mind, how would you answer that? Because I do think, generally speaking, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think we struggle with knowing, why do I have to work? I mean, most of us are looking as to how not to work, or we're aiming for that. Now, again, the, cultural, the culture speaks to this, and, and you hear it in music all the time. So back when I was growing up, the Beatles spoke about work. It's a hard day's night, working like a dog. So, so in, in, in that picture, the Beatles are telling you, you've got to work like a dog. I mean, it's menial, it's hard labor. Now, you could jump to the 80s and hit the, the classic hit from Loverboy, Working for the Weekend. You know, that's, that's teaching a truth, right? I work so that I don't have to work. I mean, I'm working for the weekend. I'm working so I don't have to work. Or you could go in between a little countrified, and you can go with Johnny Paycheck. He said, you can take this job, and I'll just leave it at that. But he's not big on work. <clears throat> he, that's something we, we don't even want the job. But the reason I reference these stickers and songs is because that's what our culture's saying. That's the general view as to what we think of work. So I want to try to recalibrate your minds on the nature and the purpose of work. And we do this in Genesis. So when you go back to Genesis, it's a recalibrating book. It reminds you of the intentions of God for why we do what we do. And you've noticed in each of these Proverbs, where have I gone back to at the beginning? Go back to Genesis. Why? Because that's where we're given life. God gave us life and gave us instructions about this life. Proverbs is a book on how to live skillfully as broken people in a broken world so that we live well. That's why we go back. And when you go back to Genesis regarding the nature of work, you find much there. Before we look at work, though, from a human perspective, just look at work from God's perspective. God worked, right? I mean, God created all things. He created it with his word, but he did. He created all things. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. 131, it was all good. But God's picture is a worker. He's a gardener in the first couple chapters in Genesis. He's a builder in Proverbs 8. He's a, a former of our beings in Psalm 139. So God is a worker. Now, if we're made in the image of God, then it would follow that we would be workers too, that he's made us to work. And this is what we find, right? 
<clears throat> it says in uh, Genesis chapter 2, 5, it says, no man was found to work the ground. So no man was found to work the ground. So that is a miss in creation. So in 2.15, he says that he formed the man and placed him in the garden to work and keep it. He formed the man to work it and to keep it. Now, <clears throat> I think that's given fuller expression when he says that male and female, God made them. And they were to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So for the man and for the woman, they were created to work and to keep the garden. That's our task. <clears throat> God has created us to take his creation and to bring it to fullness. God's creation was made perfect but not complete. So he makes the male and the female as image bearers who will carry on his work to bring his creation to fullness. Now, the older Christians used to call this a vocation. When you think of vocation, you think of someone called into the Christian ministry or some sort of religious ministry. That's not the way it's understood throughout the history of the church. Vocation is everybody has a vocation because we're all image bearers and we're all called to take his grace and his gifts and the authority that he has given to the man and the woman, and we're called to fill and subdue. This is the nature of work. It doesn't matter whether it's in agriculture, arts, literature, science. It can be in the home, it can be in the community, it can be in the church. That all of us who bear the image of God, God has created us to work and keep his creation. In our honesty, in our caring for justice, in our causing others to flourish, whatever your hand is at. And, you know, we go through many stages when we go through our many ages, from working, we work with people, may work with our hands, may work with whatever the context is. I'm thinking, I'm bearing God's image. I've been given grace and gifts. I've been given certain level of authority as an image bearer. All of us have that. And how can I serve, love, bring to fullness those people, those situations around me? That's what he's called us to do. That's pretty incredible. Now, I understand that the fall has affected this negatively. And it's made work more difficult, but it hasn't removed the dignity associated with what God has called us to do. So how do you view work? Does this, does this challenge your view at all regarding work? The errors we want to avoid, and this really applies to wherever you are in the faith or not even in the faith, we all are working. We're all workers. Even young, your students, you're learning, you're working. So some errors to avoid. The, the one error would be that we see our work as an identity maker. This, you know, my meaning and my security and my significance come from the things that I do. When you see this in a person, you see that career development will usually trump character development. That, that, that this idea of, I am what I do. In other words, I am a, whatever I produce, or however successful I am, that that is where I draw meaning and valuation from. I'd say this would be an error. You are a human being, you're not a human doing. So first, you are a, a person made in the image of God. There'll be a day you can't work. 
And on that day, your value doesn't decline because you're not able to produce something. A, a second error would be uh, that you see work as really whatever. You know, it's just paying the bills. It doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter how you do it. You just got to get it done. That to me would be a, a, you know, a poor valuing of work. It's failing to see who I am made in the image of and the gifts and the talents I have. And so it's to depreciate what God would have me do. You may do this when you're doing something that you feel is menial or insignificant. And somehow that means you're less than. That, that would not be an argument made in Scripture. The third error is to think that somehow spiritual work is greater than physical or material or business work. It's this idea that if you're doing the things of God, then it's somehow better than building a box or building a chair. That wouldn't be supported in Scripture. In our minds, we feel comfortable with the sacred-secular divide, right? Sacred higher than secular. But think about it. If God has made all things, and he's given the gifts, and he's called you to do it, isn't it all the same? Whether you're preaching a sermon or whether you're canning tomatoes, I mean, you're using his gifts with his resources for his glory. It's his world. He's giving you breath to live. So whatever you do, you can do unto God. There's no sacred secular divide that you putting a shovel in the ground can be as glorifying as preaching a sermon. I really believe that because we're just using what he has given to us in his creation for his purposes. So that's the, that's the nature of work. The purpose of work is that you have been made in the image of God. He has given you life, breath, and everything you need, the gifts, the grace. He's given you authority. And now you're called, whether you're serving somebody in the home, whether you're writing code, whether you're selling a piece of real estate, you can do these things trusting in his power to equip you to do it fairly, rightly, for the good of others bringing glory to him. And this is what one author said makes us different than the beaver. You know, the beaver is there, and the beaver is gifted with certain instincts. He can make a dam. He may have some measure of pleasure in it working out. It clearly brings glory to God by him walking out or swimming out his functions in this world. But there's a difference. And here's the difference, according to this one author. He says, no beaver reflects on the purpose of his existence and consciously chooses to glorify his maker by relying on him. Humans have all these potentials because we're created in God's image. Therefore, the essence of our work as humans must be that it is done in conscious reliance on God's power as a conscious quest of God's pattern of excellence. We want to do it like God does it well and in deliberate pursuit of God's glory. We're different in the animal kingdom because we're thinking, I am walking out my image-bearing capacity as God. So that is the purpose of work. Consider that with me. Uh, maybe even think about it. If you're struggling and you haven't seen it that way, and speak to someone after the service. Or invite somebody into your life. Do you see me working, conscious of God's giftings and grace, Walking out purposes for his glory. It would change the dynamic of the work environment if we all did it. It would change it incredibly. Seeking to serve others with the gifts that God has given to me. 
So that's the nature of work. But you know, many of us struggle with it, right? So what are the pitfalls? So Solomon here takes a son. That's the, that's the picture of Proverbs. Solomon's walking with the son, trying to give his son instructions on life. And of course, as any parent knows, you often warn your children about pitfalls, dangers, things that could come up and ruin the life of the child. And so that's what Sol- Solomon does. He gives these warnings, these pitfalls, these dangers. And what he does is he takes them to a field. And he shows them the nature of a field. He's going to use this physical reality to teach a spiritual principle. And that's the passage that was read by Wemo in 24. He says, uh, 30 to 32, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. It's amazing how often we see things, but we don't consider it. It kind of goes in, goes out real quick. But we have to see something and consider it. So you can imagine, he takes him by and he points to a field that's just in disrepair. And he says, I want you to consider this. This is a picture of the sluggard. This is a picture of the pitfalls that we can face when we are trying to work in a broken world and what we see here let me just draw some ideas and there's a lot more than i'll draw out of this but let me just give you a few examples one of the pitfalls at least in work is procrastination you know this idea of pushing off till tomorrow what can be done today you see that in a garden here the field is weeded up it hasn't been weeded i'll get to it i'll get to it i'll get to it you know, it's one of those deals where the walls are broken down. It's going to take time to get the stones and to rebuild. I'll get to it when there's, it's too hot out there. I'm going to get to it later. Th- this is the idea of, of procrastination is just the delay of doing something that you'd rather not do. You, you tend to want to rest rather than engage in the difficult task that's before you. And Proverbs speaks to this idea of procrastination. You know, I'll get out of bed. I'll get out of bed to do it. He, he says this in in 6.9 says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? You know, this idea of habitual resting. You know, it, it, the procrastination is like the guy that has a leak, but he just puts a bucket under it, as opposed to fixing the leak. He's got a honeydew list a mile long. I, I, if I can just delay it one more day, I'll delay it. This idea of sleep comes up again when he says in 26.14, as the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard turn on his bed. He's just not doing it. He, he, he's not just anchored a bed, he's hinged to it. He can't get out of it. It's just this procrastination. It, it's like the sluggard moving is like cold syrup just kind of oozing out of a jar. It just takes forever to get. This is a pitfall of work. To procrastinate leads to a vineyard, which could be a good profit-making venture. It just falls into disrepair. It's not cared for. That's a pitfall to keep pushing off what can be done. Uh, Another one is just undisciplined use of time. Undisciplined use of time. Uh, They may want to sleep. They may want to chatter. They do half things. They they start something, but they never complete it. So in 26.15, he says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. He'll go to the trouble of making a meal. He puts his hand in it, but he doesn't want to finish it. Now, obviously, it's intentional exaggeration getting us to kind of giggle, thinking, but that's a picture of a pitfall of work. 
you start this, but you don't finish it. You got homework going, but you don't complete it. You got these intentions and plans. You maybe take 10%, but then it just stops. You don't bring it to any sort of conclusion. Uh, People that are undisciplined by time or undisciplined with time often have trouble with, they like to sleep, right? I I mean, we just want to rest. We just need a little more sleep. This isn't just among teenagers. This is among many of us. But he warns us about sleep. Ten times in the Proverbs, he warns. Now, sleep is a gift of God, by the way. I mean, for us, you know, we're the only creation that hibernates every day. We hibernate for about eight hours. You go to sleep. Uh, a lot of creation does not do that. Sleep is a gift of God so that our bodies can be restored, our minds can be refreshed. But sleep can also be a pitfall. He says in 2016 or 2013, love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you'll have plenty of bread. Some of us are undisciplined. We can't get up. We, we can't go to work on time. Or we're getting up and we're running out the door without any sort of considering the day, considering the glory of God and the work that we do. And if we're not sleeping, maybe we're those who just struggle talking. You know, there are workers who just would rather tell you about their plans than complete their plans. They want to tell you about what their schemes are instead of doing any of their schemes. And Proverbs has a word for them. He says, in all toil there is profit. So if you toil, you're going to profit. He says, but mere talk tends only to poverty. So this is another another struggle that we have. He's warning the son of the pitfalls, just like you may have done with your children. Hey, be disciplined with your time. Get up early. Let's go to work and, and do work well. Another, another pitfall would be rationalizing. You know, we make excuses for not doing what we know we ought to do. And of course, there's another humorous proverb. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Now, what the, he doesn't want to go out. He doesn't want to go to work, right? And so his heart wants to rest. But his mind has to think of some legitimate excuse to give him a basis to rest. So he says, there's a lion in the streets. I mean, who could argue with them, right? You're not going to go outside if there's a lion on your front step. The problem is, of course, that while there were lions in Israel, they were few and far between. Lions tend to hunt at night, not during the day. And if they're going to look for game, they're not going to go to the city streets. So it's kind of a fallacious argument. You know, it's kind of like he just wants to justify so that he can avoid doing what he already doesn't want to do. Modern equivalent is, I can't go to work. I get hit by a bus. Do you know how hot it is out there? Goodness gracious, you couldn't work out there in that kind of heat. It's freezing cold out there. I mean, my fingers are going to all be bound up. It's too dark right now. I'll do it tomorrow. It says, you see how bright the sun is? Man, you can't work out there. So it's all these excuses for doing what we don't want to do, just avoiding it. Or it's this idea of, of just uh, yeah, scheming in terms of, uh, oh, no, sorry, the... Uh, doing what we don't want to do, but we begin to believe our own rationalizing. So he says in 26.16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer him sensibly. So here the sluggard wants to rationalize and make an excuse, and he begins to believe his own story. So, so all these are, these are just three examples of pitfalls as to what kind of ruins work for us. Now, Solomon would have been telling his son 
And of course, this applies to women as well. He's talking to a son, so you hear this male language, but it's for male and female together. And he told him about the costs of sluggardliness or laziness. The cost today to the American culture is 13 million workdays are lost due to laziness. There are great costs, the loss of wealth. You know, when you procrastinate and you make excuses and you fail to work diligently, there's going to be a cost. You lose wealth, you squander resources. Many of you have incredible talents and abilities and laziness will squander those and they won't be producing all that could be produced through you. So there's a loss of wealth uh, and that's why he says in <clears throat> 2433, he says a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. That's the idea is slowly you begin to lose the wealth that you could have made. But not just loss of wealth, there's also loss of joy in relationships. Have you ever been on a project with somebody that just doesn't want to work? You know, if you have a coworker that's not pulling his or her share, or you have an employee that you just have trouble getting there on time, they're just late every day, late, late, late. <clears throat> or perhaps you've been at college and you have this class, and the class, the teacher says, okay, five of you, you get in groups of five, you all do these projects, turn them in at the end of the year. But you got one or two that just don't want to carry their weight. Now, you want to get a good grade, they don't care about their grades, and they're just not going to do anything. And what do you have to do? <clears throat> you do their work for them. It doesn't engender relationships with people when you're having to cover always for somebody else to do what they should be doing. So there's a loss in relationships as well. And then last, there's a loss in our capacity to image God to the world. In fact, he says in 21:25, he says, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. In other words, there's almost a decreation going on in us. We have been made to image God to the world through the way we work, with integrity and honesty and diligence. When we don't do that, we are not imaging God. There's a decreation. We're becoming what God hasn't made us to be. In fact, Peter Kreeft is a modern-day theologian. He says, sloth or sluggardly, sluggardliness is a cold sin. It's not a hot one. But that makes it even deadlier, for rebellion against God is closer to him than indifference. Sloth is a sin of omission, not commission. That too makes it deadlier, for a similar reason. To commit evil is at least to be playing the game. Sloth simply does not play God's game, either with him or against him. It sits on the sideline board. <clears throat> so he's warning us now about the nature, the pitfalls of having a very poor ethic as we use the gifts and the talents he's given to us. Now, I know that for us it's easy to identify sluggardliness in somebody else. We can see it. We can identify it. But do you see it in yourself? It's harder to see it in ourselves. Do you struggle with procrastination? Do you struggle with a lack of discipline? Do you struggle with kind of just an ability to make excuses to avoid doing what you'd rather not do, even though you know it should probably be done. To what degree do you struggle with these things? Because here's what I think you're going to find, and here's the danger with it. When we tend to struggle in this area of work, 
you find the same struggle in the area of worship. So the, the same struggles of procrastination. Yeah, I'm going to read my scriptures. I'm going yeah, to engage in this ministry. We'll, we'll get to it. Yeah, we'll get to it. Maybe tomorrow. No, next week it's going to be much more open. I've heard people say, when I'm retired, I'll probably do it. And I always tell them, you won't. You're going to continue doing what you've done. You won't make a pivot when you're 65 or 67. You know, or, or undisciplined. I just can't get up to read. I can't, I can't carve out the time in my schedule. You see the same parallel that when we struggle at work, we often find the same struggle in our worship. In our worship. It, I, I don't want to bring a false guilt on anyone. Uh, I, I want the scriptures to be explained, and then if there is a right conviction, then, then we want to go to God and repent. This is a beautiful thing about Christianity, that even when we're convicted of areas of life that are out of line with what God would have, God calls us back to himself through repentance. He calls us back. When you consider the time that you have or the time that you waste, or maybe you consider the gifts that you have that haven't been invested, does that lead you to a point of repentance? Do you, do you waste time through Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram or on computer games? Do you realize <clears throat> that computer games, a survey was done from ages for men, 21 to 30, the amount of time invested in computer games, there has been a 12% decrease in worked hours because of computer games. 12%. That's a huge hit. A huge hit in terms of workable hours have been lost and have been reinvested into computer games as opposed to work itself. So you, you, you see that it has very, very practical import. And so if you sense of conviction, then repent. You know, the Apostle Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So he's reviewing his own soul. He's hearing and he's saying, am I walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? And if I'm not, I'm going to repent to God and I'm going to also repent to those whom I sin against. And that way I'll clear my conscience. And that's what we do. If you're a Christian here, that's what you do. You don't get all worried that you've sinned because we're sinners, but, but we just want to do something with it, which is repentance. So if an area of work has brought up a conviction in your own soul, then, then speak to God about it and, and ask for help. Maybe draw a, a friend in. Pray for me on this. So we want to avoid the pitfalls because it leads to ruination of who we are as people. Okay, but, but he doesn't stop there. He goes and shows a path to wisdom at work. In other words, this father is instructing his son, here's how I want you to work. But he leaves the field and the vineyard, and he moves now to the ant. He goes to the ant, and he says, let's learn from the ant. So in chapter 6, uh, verses, um, where am I? Chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So he, he now looks at the ant, and he says, look at the ant. 
I mean, you see wisdom in God's creation, right? The ant doesn't have a chief, it doesn't have a ruler, it doesn't have a king or queen telling you what to do. They just know they've got to work. And so they're self-starting. They understand the nature of what has to be done. You don't need to tell me to do it. The ant doesn't need someone to prod it and to remind it. It's, it's self-starting. It's also diligent. Do you realize that an ant can carry something in its mouth 10 times heavier than its body weight. It, 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 that's a lot, 10 times in its mouth. It's a hard worker. It, it, it doesn't need constant supervision. You know, this idea of being a self-starter, being diligent. He says this about being diligent. He says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. In other words, this idea of, Again, the dreamer and the schemer, you know, we just got to get at it. I think it was Elizabeth Elliot said, just do the next thing. Whatever it is, just go do it. You know, it's going to be hard. You may need help to do it, but just go do it. So there's a diligence. The, the wisdom at work is, I don't want to be told what to do. I want to be able to assess what should be. I may need instruction. I may need some coaching. But I, but I want to be looking for things to do, and I want to be diligent in it. You see, in the ant, too, there's an opportunistic nature of the ant. It says that she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. In other words, she seizes the time. She said, we have to work now. It's harvest time. She knows days are coming when we won't have as much. And so I want to seize this opportunity. I don't want to be the fool that sleeps in the harvest and wonders why I'm hungry two months later. And Proverbs warns this. He says in chapter 10, he says, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. He brings shame because he hasn't been diligent. He's been lazy. He's been the sluggard. So there's, a, there's an opportunistic nature that we want to be aware of. These are unique seasons. I work today because of tomorrow. I don't work of today for today. I work today for tomorrow. We're planners like God. And then last, <clears throat> honesty. Honesty in work. There's wisdom to work honestly. Listen, to be honest at work is to be honest in our conversation, that we say the truth, even if it is, I have failed at this task. We're honest in our conduct, that we are giving a full eight hours when we're paid for eight hours. He says in uh, 1611, he says, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. There's something about honesty that makes work incredibly wise. Are you honest at work? Are you honest with the time that you get paid for, the diligence that you do when you're working? Because this is really the path of wisdom. And the rewards are incredible. <clears throat> the rewards are simply this, that your needs will be met. So when you work diligently, so Solomon's saying, okay, if you do these things, if this is your work, if this is the philosophy of work that you have, then you're going to have your needs met. I mean, I already read, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. If you work hard, you'll probably have plenty of bread. Uh, so it provides for your needs. But this kind of wisdom and work leads to a satisfaction. There is satisfaction in doing a job well. 
Again, we have some instruction, 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. What's he saying here? Well, you know, the, the lazy person, the sluggard, they do want and want. And you notice they're not talking about material things, they're talking about souls. The soul of the sluggard, the soul of the diligent. The, the sluggard wants many things, he just is never satisfied, he never gets them. You know, they're thirsty, but it's not quenched. They're hungry, they're not full. The incredible thing is that, that the sluggard, his laziness never leads to rest. The, the laziness leads to restlessness. The, the, there's a sense of never being happy or satisfied. But the diligent doing a job and doing it well, doing it for God's glory, leads to a sense of that was good. It wasn't perfect. Nothing done, per nothing done is perfect, but I'm, I'm satisfied. I use my gifts for the glory of God and the benefit of these people. I'm happy with that. There's a satisfaction that you don't gain pursuing the path of the sluggard. But not just satisfaction, there's also this idea of doing good for others. Do you realize that, that your gifts exercised diligently will create wealth which is not simply for your comfort, but it's also to care for others. We see this in 21, he says, the desire of the sluggard kills himself for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous or the diligent gives and does not hold back. Part of the beauty of working diligently is that wealth is created and then we can then minister to those who haven't had the opportunities that we've had. They don't have the gifts that you may have. They don't have the capacities that you may have, but you're able to help them. And that's how you display the, the image of God because God is generous. He's given us these gifts. He's given us all these things. So we use these things. We create wealth so that we can help those who are disenfranchised or they're being treated unjustly or unfairly. It, we can give back and not just be like, the man who built bigger and bigger and bigger barns as his wealth increased. And, and then I would say also that this kind of work, this wisdom and work, it, it does build bridges for the gospel. Let me explain what I mean, <clears throat> but I'll read you the text. It says, uh, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. In other words, when you are skillful in your work, when you're diligent, you're honest, that's a language that even non-Christians enjoy. If you are an employee and you're always honest, you're always working hard, you're self-started, you're taking opportunities, that is a language that communicates, it adorns the gospel. I mean, people that may not understand the gospel, they may not even believe the gospel, but they sure do like what the gospel produces in your life. And so it builds these bridges that the skillful worker will stand before kings, not obscure men. He's saying you'll be noticed, and it gives a platform to share the gospel, to display the gospel. As opposed to preaching the gospel, you're just living the gospel. And, and then last, I would say this, the wisdom that comes from diligence has eternal ramifications. It has eternal ramifications. Uh, let, me try to make this, let me try to make this argument by, by reminding you of Proverbs 19.17. In 1917, he says, whoever lends to the poor lends to God, and God will repay him for the deed. So you see the principle? 
that when I give to someone, another human being, when I care for them, God sees it as I'm serving him. And he will reward me for the work I've done to one of his creation. So we serve one another, but God is being served. You see the same thing in the writing of Paul in Colossians chapter 3. He says, whatever you do, work heartily or diligently as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. If you believe that, it's incredible and transformative to the way we work. I mean, is it not? I, I, I mean, if, if when I go to the job, even a job I may hate, if I'm doing it as unto the Lord, if I'm seeing God, God, I'm doing this for your glory. I'm doing this for you. I, I want you honored in this work, me using the gifts and talents you've given. I want you, it transformed jobs. Whether you're folding clothes or whether you're doing finances, you could be doing the most menial or the most as the world sees it, significant work. It's the same in the sense that God's being honored. And God will grant an inheritance. I, I don't want us to sound like mercenaries. Hey, I'm going to do this, so God will give me this. If that's the approach, we're not getting it. God's generous in terms of rewarding his servants, just as you care for your children when they are walking in a right manner. Uh, but do you see what he's doing here? He's drawing our minds so that when we go to work, we're working with God in view and God encourages us that this has eternal impact. So in Revelation, John the Apostle writes, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their work for their deeds will follow them. So you, you have this continuity between how we serve in this world and how God is honored and how he comes towards us with blessings. Francis Schaeffer was a theologian of the 20th century. He says, contrary to what people say, that you can't take anything with you, yes, you will take your work with you. It's a biblical teaching that what you do matters and will continue into eternity. So you see, we have two paths before us. We have the path of sluggardliness and, and the pitfalls that are there. And we have the path of wisdom with work, honesty, diligence, self-initiation, opportunistic. And it's going to produce a host of wonderful things, including this eternal response from God. But we both know, all of us here know, that this is a difficult situation, right? I mean, everything we do tends to not be perfect. We struggle with it. It's a broken world. We're broken people. And so our work is constantly marred by selfishness, and it doesn't, it doesn't last. Nothing lasts forever. So what do we do? Well, Proverbs, remember, it's a very practical book. It drives us to long for one who will come and do a perfect work. We see all the wisdom in Proverbs, and we realize we can't live it all out. So we're longing for one that will come. And of course, when Jesus in his ministry, he says, one greater than Solomon has come. The wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs, something greater has come. That's Christ. Do you realize that Christ has come to work? He did. He, he had to learn the trade of building. Most likely he was a carpenter. But he came to do what's called a work, 
We have work. He came to do a work. We find this in John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So here, what is this work that Jesus came to do? Well, the work that he came to do was to establish God's kingdom on earth and call men and women into it. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus has come to do a work, and the work that he's come to do is to proclaim the gospel, draw men and women into it. This work that he came to do to glorify his Father would involve his own death, suffering for our sins, resurrection, ascension, and now he seats at the right hand of he's seated at the right hand of God, resting from his work. But his work involves bearing a curse. He bore the curse. I want you to see this connection. Because when Paul speaks about Jesus in Galatians 3, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's incredible here. What was cursed in Genesis chapter 3? Our work. The ground was cursed. Now with the sweat of your brow you're going to labor. Work was cursed. Christ comes to do a perfect work, which is to pull the curse, reverse the curse from us. He takes it himself. That through faith now, we can receive the Spirit of God, which means we're children of God, and it comes to us through faith, and all the promises of rest that was given to Abraham are now for us. Through faith, not through our work. And so when you look at the bread and the cup that we're going to celebrate, the bread was broken under the curse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Jesus said. And, and his blood being shed was established a new covenant, not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace, that God's favor has come to us through faith. That's why we celebrate the, the bread and the cup each week to remind us of this finished work. You don't need to work to somehow merit God's favor. God has sent one who did a perfect work where none of our works are perfect. And he sent one that would save but he, just, he, he doesn't just save us, he gives us a rest. A rest, a resting from our labors. The guilt and the shame and the burden that we, we can rest from that. He has been sufficient. Now let me read you and then we'll turn right to communion. This comes from the Valley of Vision. Uh, the prayer is God all sufficient. But it shows us, it shows us how Jesus has worked for us to give us rest he says this you have accepted his worthiness for my unworthiness his sinlessness for my transgressions you've accepted his purity for my uncleanness his sincerity for my guile his truth for my deceits his meekness for my pride his constancy for my backsliding his love for my enmity his fullness for my emptiness his faithfulness for my treachery, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness for my waywardness, his holy life for my unchaste ways, his righteousness for my dead works, his death 
for my life. This is the work that he came to do. What we couldn't do, he has done for us. So let's take a moment now before we celebrate the table and just, I would just encourage you to appeal to God as a father in heaven, asking him for wisdom and grace and how this sermon might draw you into uh, to a greater relationship and love for him that your work might reflect his glory more. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.